It's my privilege this morning to be sharing God's Word with you. I'll be preaching today out of uh, 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 8, the first, uh, first 11 verses from chapter 8. We've had some time here in the pulpit where we're, uh, we're taking a little break from our, our long time. I think we've been three or four years in Luke now. It's just a wonderful study. And look, I look forward to it every week. And as is customary in the summer, we sometimes take a few weeks off. We take time off here and there. But uh, two weeks ago, uh, Josh was in the pulpit from Isaiah, and then last week from Colossians, and this week in 2 Corinthians. So we, uh, we make it a practice here at Grace to always stay very close to the Word of God. Uh, we preach from the Bible every Sunday, and as you can tell, we've already had two readings from God's Word this morning. Three, Mark did two separate ones, so we did, we've had three already. And when we switch around, especially since I'm dropping into 2 Corinthians chapter 8 here, uh, you guys need some background. Uh, most of us know uh, book 2 of the Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, we're about to get into that one during our daily Through the Bible reading. We're going to talk about Paul and I think the road to Damascus. I think I already read that this week. But Paul is, uh, is, is well known to us. We've uh, studied him quite a bit. And uh, for many of us, we know what's going on in Cor- Corinth as well. Uh, Paul established that church in Corinth on his uh, second missionary journey. What Paul would do, what was standard for him when he, uh, when he did a missionary journey was to start off from his home church. And his home church was in uh, northern Israel in Antioch. And he left there, and then he would go up into uh, north into Turkey, uh, on into the Aegean Sea, and uh, along the coast, usually on the east coast, where he would start in the Aegean Sea. On his second missionary journey, he was going up through Ephesus, and then north into an area called Thrace. And in Thrace, he... Uh, established the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica, and he was also in Berea. And then he went on down onto the west side of, uh, of the Aegean Sea there into the northern part of Greece called Macedonia. Proceeded through Macedonia, went on down into uh, a southern part of Greece called Achaia. And there's a third part of Greece um, called Peloponnesus. It's just to the west, and it's south of Achaia. And there's a little tiny strip of land connecting Peloponnesus to Achaia. That's the town of Corinth. So he made his way all the way to Corinth. Corinth and Athens are the two main towns in Achaia. That was pretty much the end of the journey for him on his second missionary trip. Everywhere he went, Paul preached the gospel. Everywhere he went, the Jews didn't like it, and they threatened him, and they harassed him. It was no different in Corinth. Uh, In fact, uh, in Corinth, because of all the harassment that he received, he felt it was time to end his journey and he ended up uh, leaving the town of Corinth and went back to Antioch to make his, his report to his church. He started off uh, shortly after going back to Antioch, then he went on his third missionary journey. And it's on his third missionary journey that he wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians, to the church. As it turns out, this, this isn't the second letter to the Corinthians. He actually wrote a first letter to him that's been lost. The church was established in 51 A.D. or thereabouts, and the first letter was written to them that was lost. Uh, basically, just a pastoral letter, they think. Uh, the Corinthians had some questions. They asked him some questions, but it became obvious uh, when he wrote his, what we call 1 Corinthians, he wrote his response back to them in a second letter. And it's the, the first one that God saved into the canon. We call it 1 Corinthians because it's the first one that God saved for his canon. Um, but that, that first letter, it was pretty clear the Corinthian church was they were in some trouble. They were, spiritually, they were, they were struggling. Judaizers were there. Uh, they were starting to believe things that, that were not true. They were not following God's word. They were not worshiping properly. 
Uh, in short, they needed a letter of correction. So 1 Corinthians was a letter of correction. Well, they didn't take the correction very well. Between 51 and 55 AD, there was at least one more letter that got sent to them from Paul uh, called the harsh letter because in that letter he even addressed their problems more harshly. And uh, thankfully, the harsh letter had its effect. Uh, a lot of things happened. Paul even visited there during between 51 and 55 AD. And, and uh, as, as it turned out, they uh, eventually, and it's clear as we read starting in chapter 8 here of 2 Corinthians, it's clear that the tension that was there in 1 Corinthians is now gone. It's clear 2 Corinthians is not, especially starting where we're at this morning, it's not a letter where he's telling them about their sins and calling them to repent. Although there is some mention of, of conflict that's still present at the church, uh, this church has matured quite a lot, and Paul and them have been reconciled. They confessed their sins. They repented of their sins. Uh, we see uh, right in the, the end of uh, chapter 7, we, we note that Paul tells the Corinthian church that he has complete confidence in them. I have complete confidence in you. So there was a level of maturity that had been achieved by the church, and, and I think it was wise of Paul to hold off on including the church in ministry until he had confidence in them. The church age was new, and maturity in any church was in, in short supply, but it's best to wait until the hearts of the people in the church display a maturity of faith. Too often ministry that's done with the wrong heart or for the wrong motive doesn't accomplish what it's intended to do. But by Paul's assessment, by the time we reach chapter 8 of the epistle that we call 2 Corinthians, the church was ready to give to a relief effort for the persecuted church in Jerusalem. Paul was writing instructions to them so that they would have the big picture of giving. So they had a close relationship with Paul. They knew Paul. He knew them. He felt that they were ready to give to support their brothers in Judea, so he wrote to tell them how they would best do that. We're going to go over the outline for today's sermon in a moment, but let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read the first 11 verses together. So follow along with me as I read. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. The title I've given today's sermon is Giving to the Church, and I've provided a four-point outline in your bulletin today. You'll note that the outline tells us that our giving is founded upon grace, it's guided by principles, it's conducted as worship, and lastly, our giving is combined with gifts. 
A couple of those points do have subpoints, but for the most part, today's sermon is very straightforward, and I think you're going to find that God's teaching to us about giving is both clear and practical. Let's get started. Founded upon grace. This probably won't surprise you too much, but as it's indicated in point one, our giving is founded upon grace. Note the placement of the word grace right away in verse one. Paul had just established his reconciliation with the church when he wrote of his confidence in them at the end of chapter seven. No sooner does Paul speak in terms of unity when he mentions God's grace. Grace was central to that church's confession and repentance before Paul. If you were to read in a dictionary, a theological dictionary on an entry of grace, it would be probably say that it's something like this. Uh, grace is the activity of God that brings about reconciliation. Now, we all know that grace is too large a topic to deal with comprehensively in just one sermon, but I want to make three points about God's grace this morning and apply them to Christian giving. First point, I guess we'll call it subpoint A, is that grace is one of the distinctive features of biblical Christianity. Grace is a distinctive feature of biblical Christianity. No faith, no other system of religious thought, past or present, contains an emphasis on divine grace comparable to that of the Bible. This means, because our giving is founded upon grace, Christian giving will look different than all other giving in the world. I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit more in a minute. Second point, so point B, grace makes the forgiveness of sin possible. Not just forgiveness of sin between believers, but forgiveness of sin between believers and God Himself. Through Christ, our sins are forgiven by God so that we all might become believers in the first place. Grace is the action of God where He reconciles us to Himself. It was by grace that we were saved through faith. Because of our sinful nature, grace is an unmerited favor that God bestows upon us. By its definition, grace is given. It's never deserved. Grace involves interpersonal reconciliation, and this implies that giving among Christians is a personal activity. And by a personal activity, I mean that as Christians, we will have relationship with those to whom we give. We will know them, they will know us. This then naturally speaks of our mutual accountability before Christ and to one another. Third point, subpoint C. In the New Testament, grace focuses upon salvation. This informs our giving. Christians should direct their money so that it's never far from the proclamation of the gospel message of salvation. So, for Christians, the recipient of our gifts will be a person whose focus is the gospel message of Christ. Paul directs a straight line from the grace of God in verse 1 to the Macedonians' giving in verse 2. So just to review, foundation of all of our giving to God is the grace of God made available to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Christian giving is always different. It's not founded upon us or purposed for our glory, but it's founded upon the will of God and His glory. Since it's founded upon grace and grace is focused upon salvation, our giving should be both relational and gospel-centered. That's the first point this morning. Our giving is founded upon the grace of God. And like all things that are part of God's teachings, we find that giving adheres to certain principles. And that's point number two. Giving is guided by principles. This passage offers one of the best New Testament descriptions of how Christians ought to give to God. We find these principles mostly in verse 2, and it's also point number 2 on your outline. Read verse 2 with me if you would. For in a severe test of affliction, 
Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 2 is a very interesting verse. It contains not just one, but it contains two contrasts. We read here that God allowed the Macedonians to suffer affliction. He allowed them to suffer extreme poverty as well. But amid both affliction and poverty, their response was characterized by joy and generosity. It seems odd, doesn't it? Let's look at that a little more closely. In calling believers to affliction, God wants us to rely more fully upon Him. Josh made this point last week very well, so I just commend that sermon to you on our website. But I want to add just a few words for today. Just to be short and succinct, I want to just tell you all that uh, I think we need to change our view of affliction. Too often, I think we want our lives to be like uh, some kind of storybook ending, but fact is most of the people I know who are Christians talk at great length about the struggles that they're having. And truthfully, we should look at our life as a pattern of struggles, not a pattern of smooth sailing, so to speak, that's only punctuated by struggles. If you think about it, we ought to view our lives as being one test after another. God drew us before we were believers, and sometimes His drawing was in the form of affliction. So for some of us, we've had affliction in many cases, even before being called to serve Christ. And once we're redeemed, our lives are lived on the field of a spiritual battle. Our battle is what, we called, or what we're called to do as members of God's army. These struggles are the norm. They're the fabric of our lives. General tone I hear very often is that affliction is a bad thing. People complain about their affliction, but unlike what I've found to be the common belief, the affliction that God visits upon us is always for our good. In our affliction, we undergo sanctification. So follow along with me in this thinking. If, if God is loving towards us, and He is, then He causes events to occur in our lives that change us, and if we are obedient, cause us to be more like Him. And if we're more like Him, that means that by necessity, we're less like the world. And if we're less like the world, the world's going to notice that. Thus, they're going to call us back to them. And when the world tries to draw us back, it's trying to draw us away from God. Truthfully, that's, that's a lost cause, because we belong to God. The more we're sanctified, the more faithful we'll be to God, and more consistently we'll follow God. Again, this means we won't be following the world, and so they'll persecute us, and we're going to suffer affliction. You see, affliction is a measuring stick that we can use to see God at work in us as He sanctifies us. It's a measuring stick. Look at verse 3. Note the Macedonians were undergoing a severe test of affliction. They must have been making a difference. Their affliction was severe. It's almost an aside that they lived in poverty. That doesn't seem to be the spiritual issue here, but it, it's important to see that they responded in joy. They were following Christ, and He was leading them. He was sanctifying them. They were growing more and more like Christ, so the Macedonian culture at the time was making it tough on them, but it didn't matter. In their giving, they had joy. And their joy manifested itself in that their giving was characterized by generosity. Sure, when they gave, they may have had to go without. It was sacrificial giving, but for them that didn't matter. They were afforded the privilege to serve the Jerusalemites, and they were overjoyed by that opportunity. This is God's plan. We're to give when we're afflicted. We're to give when we suffer. We're to adopt a 
when it rains, it pours type mentality. That's the first point here, sub-point A under guided by principles. Sub-point A reads, we are to give while we are afflicted. We should expect to be afflicted. At the same time, we should be willing to give to others when we are afflicted. We should give with joy. Christians need to see affliction for what it is. It's God's drawing of us to Him. Imagine the God of the universe reaching down from heaven, interceding in your life so that you might be drawn to Him to serve Him. It's such a privilege to serve God. We should all be in awe by the thought that our Lord would seek us out to minister on His behalf. So affliction oftentimes coincides with our being called to give. One of the guiding principles of giving then is that we give when we are afflicted. Let's look at verse 3. This is subpoint B. Verse 3 reads, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. We know three teachings here. It's God's plan for us to give according to our means. That's subpoint B. Give according to our means. Paul knew the Macedonians. It appears that he knew how much they were giving. He could testify that they gave not just according to their means, but beyond them. So he had to know what their means were on one hand and what they were giving on the other hand. And he had to know that what they were giving outweighed what their means were. They were giving beyond their means. This speaks of an intimacy between Paul and the Macedonians. There are a select number of people in this church who know how much you give to the church. It's part of their role. It's necessary. It's a trust that's been bestowed upon these brothers and sisters. They have a knowledge of all of us that I've come to view as a burden for them. I'm grateful for these people for the fidelity with which they carry out their duty. None of the elders know how much is given by anyone here. No, do we want to know, honestly, but that's not a thing for us to know. But it is a thing for me to ask you all. Do you give according to your means? Going to look at that giving from both sides of the proverbial coin here, if you'll pardon the pun. But first of all, let's explore this from the side of one's giving beneath one's means. This can take on two forms. In both cases, it's manifested by the world's competing for your money and, and winning the battle. Let's suppose you may have been blessed with a great deal of money, but you direct your money to things not related to God's work. People who struggle with this often stereotyped as having too many possessions. And they use their time pursuing interests that have much to do with the world, but little to do with God. No matter, the principle remains, they're directing their resources to things that are unchristian. And by the way, you don't need to be wealthy to make this mistake. Second, one can spend money unwisely, so as not to get the most from the money. This is an example of stewardship. It's akin to the first example, because while the need to be filled might not necessarily be unchristian, the stewardship still falls short. With improper direction, one's money goes to the wrong place and is put to use doing work that is not God's work. So, here's what the Bible says according to your means. When you give according to your means, God receives what He ought, and the person who gives, gives wisely and prudently. It would follow then that throughout your life, as God sanctifies you and draws you to Him, you'll know Him better. And as you know Him better, you'll love Him more. You can see where this is going. The more you love God, the more you'll feel called to serve God. And 
the more you'll give to God. And as a practical matter, we should all, at regular intervals in our life, look at the amount of money we give to the church. By prayerful consideration, we should evaluate whether we're giving enough according to our means. Has God blessed us with a higher income? Then we should give more. Is our income going down? Maybe we should give less. Has He blessed us in other ways? Then we should give more in other ways too. Let's look at the other side of the coin. This is subpoint C. Subpoint A, we give in affliction. Subpoint B, give according to your means. Subpoint C, giving beyond your means. Paul also noted that the churches in Macedonia gave beyond their means. This is sacrificial giving, giving with a kind of abandon. Now, there is a foolishness to emptying one's bank account so that you might make a con- contribution on Sunday, but then you're broke. And realistically, all that do is it creates a problem for the church on the next Sunday and the Sunday after that, because now we have to give to you. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that you should give to the extent that it places you and your family in abject poverty, but to give beyond one's means and trusting God to provide according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus is in keeping with our teachings in Philippians 4.19. This kind of giving acknowledges God as our provider. Our bank accounts are there because God graciously provided for us. When we give from our reserves and consider the needs of others above ourselves, we place ourselves more deeply in dependence upon God. And it's this dependence on God that demonstrates to Him our acknowledgement of His grace and undeserved mercy. It's worshipful, and it brings Him glory. It's a fascinating thing to consider. The person in the church who gives to God regularly is blessed regularly, and the person who gives sacrificially is also blessed and receives a second blessing because he's giving and trusting that he'll be provided for. This person is acknowledging God in a practical manner. When people give beyond their means, they are exercising God's gift of faith. This will lead to someone who is more attuned to God's hand working in their life. It will deepen their trust in God. This brother or sister will find that they are able to go patiently wait for God to provide for their needs, just as God used them to work in the lives of others and provide for their needs. We note that Paul marveled at the Macedonians who gave beyond their means. Let me encourage each of you today to prayerfully consider giving beyond your means. Exercise faith. Acknowledge God in a practical manner. I'm convinced that for all of us who believe, there will come a time when God will call upon us to give beyond our means. And wouldn't it be a blessing if that was called upon regularly and we all gave just a little bit beyond our means as a general term? I don't believe it's the norm in the United States to give sacrificially. I think we give out of our abundance. But economics, politics, persecution may progress to the point where sacrificial giving becomes more and more common. God will never leave us nor forsake us. We should never forsake His work. This leads me naturally to our last subpoint in God's principle of giving, subpoint D. Just review, we're to give when we're afflicted, give according to our means, blessed extra when we give beyond our means, and now we're to give of our own accord. Subpoint D, give of your own accord. Doesn't matter whether you're giving your time, your talent, or your money. If you give freely, you're giving according to God's will. No one can serve God under compulsion. No one can give under compulsion. All giving to God is to be unvoluntarily. If it weren't voluntary, it wouldn't be giving. It'd be just someone else taking. To follow up with the last point, if you acknowledge God's work in you and His mercies and grace bestowed upon you, then of course you'll give of your own accord. 
Giving not done of your own accord isn't really giving to God rightly. An accurate understanding of how God wants you to give merely edifies you. But practicing that giving and giving with the right understanding and attitude sanctifies you and it brings Him glory. This means there's no such thing as tithing in our church. Tithing is built upon an Old Testament tradition that's akin to taxation. In the church age, we give freely, we give of our own accord. There's no mention of a tithe in the New Testament. Do you apply some kind of formula to your giving? You give 10% or 15%? Not a nickel more, not a nickel less? Why do you do that? You ever asked yourself that question? From what I've shared today, we're all supposed to give according to our means. We can rest assured that our giving will be out of affliction. It'll be done by God's grace. We'll end in our joy, but still, it won't be the same for each of us because we all have different amounts of wealth and different amounts of talent. Some will give much, some will give little. But the amount that each believer gives is personally determined. Exodus 16 teaches us, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's the same when we give to our church. Don't neglect your gift just because you may feel that it's a small amount. The ones who gathered little manna still needed that little manna. The church needs your small amount because it's your gift. And as an elder, I want you sanctified by the exercise of your gift. As we're sanctified, we become more in tune with God's will for our lives since He's given us the responsibility of determining our giving to Him, we must responsibly consider each time we give how much we are to give. It's not a matter of multiplying our income this month by some decimal factor. It's prayerfully making a decision. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of worship. It's glorifying activity. Next verse. Let's move there. Point three here. Giving is conducted as worship. Giving is an act of worship. Paul is Talking about the Macedonians in verse 4, we read here that they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. When we give, it's we who are benefited. Giving is a privilege. God blesses us as we give. We're serving God's high purpose when we give, and we note that in verse 4, the Macedonians were so grateful that they could take part in helping the church in Jerusalem. It's not just an exercise of applied mathematics. It's an experience of loving ministry. When we devote our time and our resources and the money with which God has blessed us with to do the work of God, what we're doing in all of that is a very tangible way of telling God and witnessing to others that God's work is worthy of being done. We testify of its value when we give of our lives to accomplish it. Our lives testify and we proclaim the worthiness of God to all who can see. Proclaiming God to be worthy isn't just done in the confines of this room on Sunday morning. It's lived out in our lives. Freely giving to God to advance His kingdom is an act of worship. Giving money to support the church and support the work of the saints to bring about His kingdom is a part of that worship. I like setting aside a time during our worship service when we as a body of believers can together contribute to the furtherance of kingdom work. I know that whomever is called to give on that day will sit down with me as a brother or a sister in Christ, and together we will give to our God, will humbly thank Him by giving back to Him as a mere token of all the gratitude that we have for everything that He's done for us. We give as an act of worship. 
Lastly, point four teaches us that our giving is combined with our other spiritual gifts. Combined with gifts. It encompasses verses five to seven. You might want to have your Bibles open there. We need to see that God's Word directs us to give to His needs first. Just like the Macedonians gave first to the collection for the church in Jerusalem, and then they gave in support of Paul. This is akin to giving to the general fund of our church first before giving to extra or special projects like, for example, the deacon's fund. Both are good to give to, but primary giving is to the church. Don't let the thing that is good become the enemy of the thing that is the best. Give to God first, and then by the will of God, give to other things. This too is personal decision, yet it's a practical command. Next we note that Titus was directed to ask for the offering. Grace Church in Greeley, like the churches in Macedonia and Corinth, has overseers. Your elders and pastors here at Grace make it a practice to oversee the direction of the money that's used in ministry at the church. Just as Paul directed Titus, the elders direct an array of men and women who work kind of behind the scenes to see to it that the money you give in obedience is handled with integrity and fidelity. Just to give you a quick sketch, we receive weekly updates by our treasurer who works closely with the deacons and who is helped by a team of people, which begins at the collecting of the offering, and then the counting, and then the depositing, and then eventually the dispersing of God's money as we pay our bills each week to do God's work. All along the way, we prayerfully consider how His money is to be spent. I have to say I'm humbled by the giving that I've seen here at this church, but at the same time I'm cognizant of the fact we have much left to accomplish and we need to increase in our faithfulness to God. So just as Paul directed Titus to speak to the church in Corinth to complete this act of grace, I stand before you today and I urge you to complete your act of grace. We serve the same God whose gospel message Paul faithfully proclaimed and shared we have pastors and elders who stand before you faithfully pr- proclaiming that same gospel message. So let me urge you again, complete your act of grace. Now, to get to point four here, I was kind of dancing around that one a bit there, but the core teaching of point four is that our giving is combined with our other spiritual gifts. We're not to give of our time or our talents in lieu of giving of the money that God provided us with. We're to give our money in addition to all the other things we give. Imagine how silly it would sound if someone were to say to you, well, I helped those ladies in the kitchen one time, so that's my part. I don't put anything in the offering plate. I just give in the kitchen. Well, I suppose if you're called to give in the kitchen, that, that's great, and they could certainly use your help. And there's lawn work that has to be done, and we've got maintenance stuff that has to be done, and you can talk to any of the deacons, or you could talk to Rod. We've got VBS coming up. We, need, we just made the announcement today that we've got some help there. But the point of the matter is our monetary gifts are combined with the rest of the things that we give to Christ. The Apostle Paul began his, excuse me, his relationship with that little church in Corinth by giving a simple evangelistic sermon. Men and women were drawn to Christ by the preaching of the Word, and a church formed. The church grew. In the course of events that followed, God allowed affliction to visit that young and confused church, but by the persistence of a man wholly devoted to Christ, the word was proclaimed and eventually sin was confessed, forgiven, and repented of. As the believers matured in their walk with Christ, Paul called them to join him in the work of the kingdom and taught them that the affliction they had seen was to be theirs as long as they walked with Christ. They were to be given by the grace of God in their affliction. They were to give from what they had and beyond if they were so called. They were to give of their own accord And the joy that they were to receive by their giving would be in accord with the blessings that were poured out to them by the Holy Spirit. God had gifted the church in faith, in speech, and in knowledge, but they were also to give of their wealth. 
giving in that time could never exceed the gift that their God had bestowed upon them. And so it is today. God's only Son came to earth, humbled Himself to become a man, set aside His glory, but even though He lived a perfect life, being fully human yet fully God, He gave His life in propitiation for the sins of all those whom He predestined and called and sanctified and glorified. Jesus Christ gave His riches and became poor so that we might become rich. Christ's action on the cross brought him to spiritual poverty. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Through his poverty, we are now rich in Christ. By his grace, out of his abundant blessings, we should give to accomplish God's work, and we must give. By God's grace, we can. By the affliction brought to us by God, we will be drawn to give. By our means, we are told to give. We'll be blessed further should we give sacrificially beyond our means. We freely are to give to God as an act of worship and in combination with all the other spiritual gifts that He's lavished upon us. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that this church today will not be merely edified by the teaching of Your Word, but we would also be sanctified as we give according to the teachings of Your Word. Draw us together now so that we may give according to Your purpose. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.